quick note, we had a mishap with the recording. There's a gap where we start talking about Justin Fields, but my question isn't there. Everything else is there and should be fine. It's a really good, informative podcast. Enjoy the show. Also, don't forget to give us a rating. Five stars. Spread the word. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the RC Report. Today I have a very special guest, Mark Schofield from USA Today via the Touchdown Wire. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. As good as you can do or as well as you can do during these times. There's a lot going on, and I was hoping by this time in the year, in August, that you know, when it started in March, that somehow we wouldn't start still be talking about COVID and everything would be back to normal. But unfortunately, and I won't get political, they aren't. So my first question right. is, what do you think the chances are that we get a full 16-game NFL season? I mean, it, it, I, I can't put it at 100%. I just can't as much as I'd love to. I think we all want a, a full 16-game regular season, a full complement of playoff games. But, you know, the, the, the ability of this virus to spread – um, it's unlike anything we've ever really seen. And while all the teams, all the clubs, all the players can try to do the right thing, we've seen that bubble environments work the best. The NBA, for example, um, MLS, for example, once they had a, they had a couple of problems with the start, but they worked it out. Uh, w- women's basketball, women's soccer, like bubble environments work. The hockey, NHL, the two hubs, uh, those work. Whereas Major League Baseball tried to return, and what happened? A couple guys go out, you start getting positive tests. And I think the problem is football has such a big footprint, you can't really put 32 teams into bubbles. You can't really put, you know, during training camp, 90 players into bubbles. It's just too hard to do. We're seeing teams start to transition to padded practices right now. There's a part of me that's worried about that. But beyond that, when the season starts... You know, people will go out. People will go out to eat. People might go out to blow off steam after a game. Or even everybody does everything right, but, you know, they order takeout and somebody uh, transmits the virus that way. I, I think we're going to see some cancellations. I think they will do everything they can to have a full game, a full season. But I just think what we've seen over the past couple of months, man, is this this transmits so easily. And I'm, I'm much more worried about the college game because – we're seeing, you know, we're recording this on Sunday. I've seen videos since I woke up this morning on Twitter from the University of North Georgia, from Oklahoma State. College kids go back to campus. What's the first thing they do before classes start? They go out. They go to parties. Is they go to point? bars. They go to the frat houses. And we saw the other night a couple of Auburn players were talking about how nobody on campus is wearing a mask. You know, nobody on campus is adhering to, like, social distancing. Everybody's going out. And the, thing, the college level is, again, the guys in the team can do everything right, but you walk into your Econ 101 class and somebody that was at the bars the other night is sitting next to you. And some of the Auburn players even said, look, I've got four in-person classes this fall. You know, what's going to happen when that kid that went to the bars, walks into Econ 101, sits next to the backup linebacker who then goes to practice, and now suddenly you've got an outbreak on the Auburn football team? It's just it just seems like it's too hard to manage this while playing sports unless you're in a bubble. And since NFL teams and college teams don't seem to be moving that way, I'm very skeptical we get a full season. What are and as far as college goes, 
What are your thoughts on a lot of I've seen college coaches say, and I've seen, I guess, the guys that really, really want the football guys. What's your view that they're saying that these players in college would actually be safer than going home? And then there is in almost every major college, there's an isolation, a natural isolation of athletics and especially football programs of what they use and that almost they could create a mini bubble there and the players were actually be better off than going where they live. I mean, I think in a sense there is some validity to that argument because if you're going to just say, look, everybody just go home, then you, you know, you can't sort of keep an eye on everybody. You can't have access to testing that we anticipate these colleges will implement you know, the FDA just got approved for this saliva test that came out on Saturday where that's what the NBA has been using. You can test everybody quickly and get results quickly um, almost overnight or immediately, I think. 30 minutes, I think, is the timeline on that test. And if they're doing that with these college kids, you know, they would be safe for that environment. But the problem is, as we just talked about with the Auburn example, they're not really doing that. They're having these kids go back to classes. And then you're at the mercy of what everybody else is doing on campus, what you know, the kids that aren't playing sports are doing, you know, they might be going out at night and then they're putting the program at risk as a result. I understand that there's frustration that, like you said in the intro, this happened, this started in March and here we are mid August and we're still dealing with this. We, we thought it would be over by now and it's not. And there's this frustration. There's a desire to get back to normalcy and that includes college football in the fall. But as we've seen, you know, absent really locking everything down and putting everybody in a bubble, we can't prevent this from spreading right now. And I think the thing that also sort of got university presidents concerned is the idea that, yes, if a college athlete contracts COVID-19, it's not going to be fatal. You know, the, the numbers tell us that, you know, by large, the fatal cases come with people with you know, the, the elderly, people with pre-existing medical conditions. But what's uncertain and what's unclear right now are the effects of those that even have a full recovery, particularly in the young. We're seeing anecdotal evidence of, you know, there's a woman, a, a runner in the Chicago area, I believe, in her 20s, that needed double lung transplants after this. There was a Red Sox pitcher, pitcher uh, that had developed myocarditis, the swelling of the heart muscles as a result of contracted COVID-19. And that's something that I think university presidents are very concerned with, the idea that some players will make a full recovery and live, but might have permanent injuries as a result of contracting COVID-19. And they don't want to subject players to that potential. And so until we can get sort of a full handle, whether it's a vaccine or you know true therapeutics to treat this, a lot of university presidents are going to want to shy away from playing. And for example, the University of Michigan's president, he's an you know epidemiologist, you know, so he this is his field, and he's worried about the long term effects here. So I understand why we all want to see football in the fall, man. Believe me, um, but I think there's a concern about the potential long term effects of those that contract to COVID nineteen, even if they make a full recovery and live. Yeah, and that that's a big thing. And I personally, and, and most of the people that listen to my podcast know this and that know me on social media, whatever, I contracted it. And I was, this is in April, and I was down for a week. But then I tried to go back to the gym and maybe after two weeks, and I was not right. And it took me about a month to get right. my win back and recover, and recover. And that wasn't, I would say, I didn't have the most severe. It's probably a moderate case or 
of it and von miller has even talked about that and then what you're talking about medically where it can be right. permanent damage it's 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 something another thing that uh that college fans a lot of times and i'm trying to be fair to them because i think that people really just want their football because people are obsessed with football so i'm trying to be fair and not use any pejoratives when i use people that are advocating these things but another thing they are talking about is just having a liability waiver signed and you are a former lawyer and i saw that you wrote an article about it what is your and you pointed out some flaws in that but uh talk about liability waivers in terms of this and what are the potential pitfalls right and you know first of all again i wasn't the best lawyer in the world that's the reason why i'm doing this now instead of practicing law but the main thing to think about keep in mind is one you know liability waivers they can't be signed by minors. They're like any other contract, right? If, if you're under the age of 18 and you try to buy a car, you try to get a credit card in your name only, you can't because you can't enter into a contract. And so, yes, most college athletes are at least 18, but some aren't. So what happens then? Are the parents going to unsign them? So that's one issue. The other issue is states view these differently. You know, I, I put in the article a hypothetical. So you've got... You know, somebody at the University of Virginia that signs one, somebody at Wisconsin that signs one, somebody at Penn State that signs one, you know, and then all three of them contract COVID-19. What's the legal result? The Virginia kid, that's not effective at all. There's no Virginia has basically barred liability waivers. It dates back to a case when somebody was working on a railroad, you know, building a railroad back in like the 1890s. You know, he got hit by a train. He dies. Family sues. They said, no, you've got this waiver here. And they said, no, 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 waivers aren't valid. It's against public policy. And that was reaffirmed by a case that's perhaps more on point where somebody was running a triathlon that was held in like some like community lake. He dives into the lake, hits his head. He's a paralegic now. Um, he had signed a waiver and they said, no, they're not valid, that they go against public policy. So Virginia explicitly bars them. Wisconsin is one of a handful of states that sort of has said that for, for the most part, we do not recognize liability waivers. They're not valid. But then there's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the states that goes in the other direction. They've actually said that they are, in some cases, valid. But again, they would have to be egregious to go against public policy. That's kind of how Pennsylvania does it. So if you've got 50 different states, 50 different potential scenarios, it's hard to then say that one is going to be rock solid effective. And it's hard to see how, you know, players will sign them, students will try to enforce them when there's all this uncertainty about them. Then there's the basic tenet of contract law, which is sort of the bargaining position of the parties, you know. It's supposed to be assumed that the parties are on equal terms. They each have the ability to say yes or no and things like that, which is why if one party has ultimate bargaining position over the other, any contract that's signed between the two is not going to be held valid. And the example I put into the article is, say somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, sign this contract that says that you are going to give me my give me your car, you know, and then you do it. And then the guy walks away and then you sue him for your car back. And he says, no, 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 I have a contract. Well, you had a gun to your head. That's not an equal bargaining position. And now obviously comparing that to scholarships and things like that isn't exactly apples to apples. But the schools have severe bargaining power if they were trying to force players to sign these because they could say, you won't play. We'll pull your scholarship. You'll, we'll kick you off campus. 
you know, there is that sort of implied threat. If you're going to put a piece of paper in front of a 19 year old college athlete and say, look, you want to play football in the fall, you got to sign this. Like that's an equal bargaining position. So courts would probably knock them down for that as well. And then finally, the NCA flat out said, look, we don't want schools doing this. We're going to schools should not be in the position of forcing players to sign liability waivers. Now, schools have tried to get in around that saying they're going to sign these pledges like I pledge to do the right things. And then they, there's a thought that they might try to use those as then liability waivers saying, no, no, no. He said he was going to do everything the right way and he didn't. Now we get COVID-19. It's his fault. And I don't think that would hold up in court as well. And so, you know, a lot of people have said, look, liability waivers, that's the way to get back to football in the fall. And it's like, well, that sounds great. But when you really look at it as an idea, it falls apart pretty quickly. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people are grasping at straws. And then you I mean, you essentially have that these are, quote unquote, air quotes, amateur athletes. And you're trying to put them in a position where they're essentially risking their lives, their health, well, the people around them. It, it, it's, it, it's a problem. Yeah, and I, I, I think you, know, you kind of hit the nail on the head there because you put amateur athletes in quotes. And I think that's the underlying thing that runs through this entire discussion is that anything that the schools would do to really get back to football and put them in a bubble and do things the right way would really just chip away at the idea of student athletes and amateur athletes. Because I think we're also seeing, let's not forget, students of the student athletes in the Pac-12, student athletes in the Big Ten, you know, signing, you know, pushing for changes to the NCAA model. You know, and I think the sort of idea that athletes are going to try to form they they tried to form a union northwestern did back in you know i think it was like 10 12 years ago keen coulter and others and that was you know that wasn't upheld by the national uh, labor relations board but there's an idea that players are trying to move towards some sort of players association which is going to be like a, a pseudo union in a sense the presidents are worried about that the ncaa is worried about and so while you're trying to get back to football, the things that you need to do to get back to football would, again, illustrate that these aren't really amateur athletes anymore. They're pseudo-professional athletes. So it's this idea that trying to get back to football might chip away at the allure of amateur athletics. And that's the other thing I think we should keep in mind here is that schools are worried about these players and the power that they have when they form players unions and bargain together they will wield incredible power look at some of the things we've seen this offseason you know mississippi state players down there saying we're not going to play until you change the flag and what happened that all of a sudden you've got mike leach you've got lane kiffin you've got all these coaches marching on the state house saying you got to change the state flag Their, our kids aren't going to play student athletes and athletes in general really have tremendous power to influence social change. And we're seeing that play out this this spring and into the summer. And the NCAA and the NCAA University presidents see that as well. Let's move to actual football. Assuming that we have it, we can get to actually talk about football in the hopes that right. we have it. Uh, the New England Patriots, surprising the some, not surprising the others, signed Cam Newton. What do you look, what do you... What does Cam in New England look like to you based on your best hypothesis? Well, I think it looks unlike anything we've seen for the past 20 years. And, you know, I've, I've talked about Cam's potential impact on this offense a lot. And I think the first thing to keep in mind is for the first time in 20 years, the Patriots will be playing 11 on 11 again when they have the football. 
Um, and what I mean by that is, look, you have Tom Brady, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. But when you're a defensive coordinator going up against the Patriots and Tom Brady, the last thing on your mind is 12 tucking it in and running. The last thing on your mind is trying to defend for what 12 can do as an athlete with the football in his hands. So you could basically dedicate resources everywhere else. And we saw this last year, right? This was a Patriots offense that struggled because defenses figured out you double team Julian Edelman, you put a, a defensive back on James White. And you dare Tom Brady to throw the ball anywhere else. And the last thing you worry about is Tom Brady tucking it in and running on third and six. Well, now if you do that against Cam Newton, you're in trouble. Because Cam Newton is going to be able to create with his legs, number one. But number two, and this is sort of a, a undersold aspect of the Brady era, you know, the Tom Brady circle of trust is real. You know, Tom Brady had receivers that he trusted to throw to. And if you couldn't find your way into that Tom Brady circle of trust, like, say, Nikhil Harry last year, we saw that interception against Houston where he didn't, in Brady's mind, fight for a ball on a slant route. Brady was going to ice you out. Cam Newton's not that way. Cam Newton's going to throw to the open receiver. And so you lose the numbers game now as a defense if you ignore Cam Newton. And another thing that the Patriots have done so often with Tom Brady – you know, they have that empty formation. They bring the running back, James White, back into the backfield. Sometimes they snap it to him on this little outside fly sweep around the end. If you're the middle linebacker, you're racing to the edge. You don't have to worry about, you know, a designed quarterback run. Now you do. So that opens up other things for you as an offense. You know, is Cam Newton the passer that Tom Brady is? No, but I think he's very good. Is Cam Newton the, like, quarterback on the, the superhuman computer? on the football field that Tom Brady was no, but he's pretty darn close. And people sometimes try to say, well, he's not going to learn the offense. He's not going to pick it up. You know, he's not a, a film guy. That's all rubbish. That, that's all garbage in my mind. Like you, you watch Cam Newton over the years. This is a guy that knows that Panthers offense inside and out. Now, yes, he's going to be learning a new offense in a strange pandemic time without the benefits of minicamp and OTAs that he signed late. But I have no doubt that Cam Newton is going to have this offense down pat come week four of the season. And it's an offense that he will be familiar with because if you look at the Panthers' offense over the years and a lot of what he was doing with them, uh, what the Patriots have been doing, there's a lot of similar similarity between the two. Um, so I'm extremely excited to see Cam Newton in this offense. Um, if the Patriots get anything close to, say, the 2017 Newton, where he basically willed that Panthers team to the playoffs, throwing to Brandon Burson and Ted Ginn, I think this is a team that could be competitive very quickly. A lot of people have sort of thought that Buffalo might be the team to beat in the AFC East, particularly when it looked like they might be changing to Jared Stinema quarterback. But I think the acquisition of Newton certainly narrowed the gap a bit. Patriots have issues elsewhere, though. A lot of opt-outs, Dante Hightower, Patrick Chun, their right tackle, Marcus Cannon. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a transitional year. But I think Newton brings an element to this offense that the Patriots haven't had in the last two decades. Moving on to Dak, it's been an ongoing story for two years, Dak's contract, and it just depends on, gosh, football Twitter could be so so toxic and so can Cowboy fandom, I'm a Cowboy fan, <laughs> yes, or, uh, did, and, uh, you know, as a Cowboy fan, it, as one that's not like uh, just a fanatic, like I'd like to analyze the sport, I think Dak made some great strides this year. I think the average fan says, oh, my gosh, why would you pay him that much? But that's the market. So you have to pay him <laughs> what the market right. bears. But what's your 
take on where Dak is as a passer, well, as a quarterback, and then the whole contract situation? I mean, for me, from where I sit, we ranked Doug Farrar and I over at Touchdown Wire. We did our top 101 players. We did our top 11 at each position. Um, And I did the quarterbacks. And Dak was, I I think I had him like fifth or sixth. I mean, I'm a Dak Prescott fan now. And I wasn't when he came out. And, you know, full disclosure, like, I I think he was like quarterback 15 or 17 for me in that draft. Um, I, I... I missed on him, and part of what I missed on is part of what has made him great in the National Football League, and that's that competitive toughness factor. Like, I had it in my notes. I revisited him uh, two years after he was in the league and you know wrote a piece um, over at Inside the Pylon, Law Made Rain, about how I missed on him, and it was that competitive toughness factor. I had it in my notes, but I didn't weigh it properly. Um, and I think when you look at Dak Prescott now, especially this season, it is hard in my mind, not to make the case that Prescott can be your most valuable player when this league is, when the season's over, he's going to have perhaps if, if not the best three wide receivers set in the national football league to throw to it's, it's his top five, you know, cause you've got Amari Cooper who is one of the game's best route runners. You've got Michael Gallup who is not a household name, but should be, you know, he's a fascinating wide receiver. And then they got CD lamb to fall to them. And we're hearing that Mike McCarthy is having him learn all three receivers' positions, you know, the X, the Z, the slot. That's a tremendous wide receiver trio. You've still got Ezekiel Elliott. We've got Tony Pollard, who can do some things for you out of the backfield as well. Um, He's obviously not Ezekiel Elliott, but he's still a very good, you know, three-down back type of guy that maybe you'll use him in spot situations. And when you get to the tight end, it really doesn't matter, but Blake Jarwin's not that bad either. And so Dak's in a position to be extremely successful. And as to the contract portion of the discussion, the quarterback's a different position. Because if you've got a guy that can win games for you, if you've got a guy that, and I oftentimes have, I oftentimes kind of put quarterbacks in a couple of different categories, guys you win with, and then there's guys you win because of. The guys you win because of are the elites, right? A guy like a Russell Wilson or a Patrick Mahomes that can will you to a win, you know, with what they do. You know, then there are the guys you win with that are good and they might have some great games here and there, but they have to be sort of in the right setting. Like think Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo, those are guys you win with. Which is Dak Prescott? A guy you win with or a guy that can will you to some wins? And I think he's more a guy that can will you to some games. He's in that sort of tier, I think. And those are the guys that you pay. I mean, heck, you even pay the other guys. Because if you can't figure out quarterback, you're lost as a team. And so I think, yeah, it might sound crazy paying Dak Prescott $42 million or so a year, but that's the rate for quarterbacks in this league right now. That's where the market is moving. And not to get off on too much of a tangent, but I think that's why the Kansas City Chiefs were so smart to lock up Mahomes early because they'd rather set the market than have Prescott's, Prescott's contract set what they have to pay Patrick Mahomes. Because let's say hypothetically, Dallas comes out you know, June 1st, we've inked a eight-year contract extension with Dak Prescott worth an average of $42 million per year, right? What does Kansas City have to now pay Patrick Mahomes? Exactly. 
it's probably a little bit more than the 50 per, right? Yeah, and it was You're so much smarter. Saying, well, maybe it was it's 52, 53 per. Yeah, it was yeah. so much smarter for so, Dallas. Right? Like, to, I think for, Kansas City was so much yeah. smarter. Yeah. Exactly. Kansas City paid. It was like, I'm like, so, just as a Cowboy fan, you just have to pay Dak. You could have paid Dak two years ago and tied it in, tied the extension into the last year of his contract. And you wouldn't be having to pay what you're going to have to pay. Like, I never in my wildest imagination thought Mahomes would get signed to a long-term deal before Dak. It's just crazy if you're looking at NFL economics. It's it's insane. I mean, I I think that's why, like, a team like Kansas City, even the Eagles, look, they there were still questions about Wentz and his health, and I guess there still are, but they locked him up quick because the sooner you do it – it might seem ridiculous at the moment, but now Wentz is cheap by comparison. Very. And yep, so it's teams like wait, you're going, yeah, you're going to have to pay a lot more. And that's what Dallas is facing. That's what Houston is going to face because Deshaun, he's going to get a big contract too, and he'll also be worth every penny of it. But, I mean, I think if, if you're a team now, and I know we've – I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. When we – talk about like the economics of the NFL. One of the things we harp on is, oh man, the best competitive advantage you can have as a team is to have, get a good quarterback playing on that rookie deal. You could spend the money elsewhere. It almost seems like that's like short-term thinking. The move now might be, if you identify the fact that your guy is good, you extend him almost immediately. You say, I, I know you're just in year two of your deal. We don't care. Here's like an eight-year extension because if you do it then, yeah, it might seem a little bit pricey up front, but when you get into years three and four, it's going to be seen. It's going to seem cheap by comparison. What's your thing? What's your take on a lot of? It's a common narrative that I see fans on Twitter and in Facebook and on my podcast and groups and things like that that they're like, "Don't pay the quarterback! Don't pay the quarterback!" Because that's going to take so much of your salary cap. But in my mind, that's a set cost. And what's really happening? is the quarterback isn't being surrounded properly or there's poor drafting or you've got dead money but it's easy for the fans to scapegoat like a Matt Stafford contract or a Kurt Kurt Cousins contract or whatever when and you do have that stat where the highest paid quarterbacks you know haven't won a Super Bowl or have like a negative playoff record if I can't remember exactly the details of it but I think it's more of a function of the team not managing his roster well as opposed to paying a quarterback yeah I think that's exactly right I mean part of the reason you pay a quarterback is because you think that he could be that guy to sort of elevate the level of play in everybody around him you know Jared Goff is kind of an example of perhaps paying the quarterback but he hasn't lived up to the end his end of the bargain but at the same time it is such a critical position where and if you think about the sort of concept of quarterback purgatory, right? You pay the guy, it doesn't seem like he ends up being as good as you hoped he would be. But you're stuck because the alternative is trying to get it right through the draft. And as we've seen, teams continue to get the quarterback position wrong because it's so hard to figure out. Um, I get it wrong all the time. Everybody gets quarterbacks wrong all the time. It's just, it's just the nature of the business. And so you're, you're stuck sometimes paying a guy that isn't as good as you thought he would be rather than hoping you get it right the next draft cycle. But that gets to the point of the draft cycle in and of itself, which you alluded to, which is you pay the quarterback, now you get a build around him, and you get the draft wrong. You know, you think you draft the right left tackle, and it doesn't pan out. You think you draft the right wide receiver to pair with him, it doesn't pan out. The draft is such an inexact science. 
And NFL teams have so much information at their disposal. They have film. They have the ability to call up anybody that this prospect has ever talked to in his life and interview them. They can hire private investigators to track these guys. And they do this, you know, if they're coming out to visit you. You know, you have hire a private investigator to get on the plane with them, to shadow them, to mirror them, to see how they interact with ticket agents and gate agents and TSA agents and flight attendants. You know, you have all this information as an NFL franchise and you still get it wrong. And so it's like that at every position. The draft isn't an exact science. No matter how much time we on football Twitter spend talking about prospects and we do it until we're blue in the face, we get it wrong too. And so it, it speaks to the fact that you can identify the right quarterback and pay him, but you might miss at every other position and then you're stuck. But you still have to pay the quarterback because it's, he's the guy that touches the ball in every single play. No, he's the guy that you have put in the fate of your franchise in your hands. You have to pay that guy, and you have to hope that you get it done the right way. I think something that's important to remember, though, there's more to personnel and there's more to building a roster than just the draft. We often in football media overemphasize the draft, and again, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else because if we spend our entire summer watching prospects to get ready for the fall and then we watch the rest of their games in the fall and we start debating them and doing mock drafts and building watch lists and building potential fits and scheme fits and going to the combine and going to the senior bowl we're ignoring the other half of roster building which is the pro scouting side you know if you look at the new england patriots yeah they've missed on a ton of draft picks before but they also bring in a ton of like second-tier free agents every free agency period. And it's those guys, the guys like when they signed Kyle Van Noy and when they bring in guys like a Corey Dillon or they trade for a Wes Welker, the, thing, the signings and the acquisitions that fly under the radar, those are the ones that have built their teams. And so while we harp on the draft and it's important, let's not forget, teams also need to do a better job of that pro scouting side. We, when free agency begins, everybody's caught up in the big deals and the big names, but sometimes it's the guys that sign a week later or two weeks later or in some cases like Cam Newton months later that are much more important in the long run. So teams need to do a better job there as well, building their rosters through the free agency process. Sticking to the NFC East theme, because I would, I would imagine most of the people that listen to my podcast are NFC East fans, uh, Daniel Jones, and you've written about him extensively as of late. And my problem with Daniel Jones, and I, I saw him as a second round guy, my problem is, and there's there's some stats out there, I think uh, 538 had a thing where he did much better with man coverage and zone coverage. My My issue with Daniel Jones is that it's almost robotic. If he knows the read, he feels confident, and he can get the ball out of his hands quickly, he's very good. But when he's got to get past that next tick, that 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 first read, moving to the second read, that being off script a little bit, I think he, and it's evidenced by some of the turnovers where he holds the ball, I just think that it's not there, and I'm not sure something like that that I've seen from quarterbacks in general it's it's fixable because you have to process so much information in such a small period of time and it just seems like to me when i watch the tape and i've watched watch college and pros that that aspect of being able to smoothly get get through the progressions quickly consistently is missing what's your feeling on daniel jones 
I think you kind of nailed it um, with Daniel Jones there, particularly the idea that he struggles when he has to get to, say, his second read or something like that. And what's important is, look, when you look at Daniel Jones, think about his background as a quarterback. When he was at Duke, a whopping 72.6% of his dropbacks were either zero or one-step drops. Your RPOs, your design throws. Those that looks that translates to a number of basically one read throws. So his entire offensive background is I know exactly where I'm gonna go with the football when the ball is snapped, right? And that gets to exactly what you were saying, which is if he knows where to go with the football, he he has his mind made up, he'll be great. Like he can execute it. The problem becomes when he has to get to that second read or sometimes his third read, the problem becomes when he has to sort of read a complex zone coverage rotation in the secondary, that's where things start to fall apart for him. And so, you know, what I'm looking for from Jones is that ability to do a much better job diagnosing, deciphering, and then deciding what to do with the football, you know, get into that second read, get into that third read, be much more consistent with it. When the defense takes away that primary read, how quickly can he then transition to option B, option C in the route concept? The problem for Jones is he's now going to be in his third offense in three years, and he's doing it without the benefits of minicamp OTAs and preseason games. He's going to be learning a downfield type passing game like you've seen up close and personally of Jason Garrett, you know, who comes from that Eric Coriel school of thought. And the other thing to keep in mind is a guy that was sacked 38 times last year, put the ball on the ground 18 times, which led the league. And now they're looking at having a rookie left tackle and a rookie right tackle. Like this is not a recipe for success. And so I have some hesitations about how good the Jones and Giants are going to be. You know, if we start to think about, you know, the year two quarterbacks, we often see year two quarterbacks take that leap forward. You know, a lot of people thought that Jones might be a guy that could take a leap forward. I don't know about that. You know, he has some nice weapons around him. Saquon Barkley's great. Um, but this new offense, the time we're living in, two rookie left, two rookie tackles, that's a tough ask. If you're going to bet on our year two quarterback, I think Kyler Murray and yes, even Drew Locke might be safer bets than Daniel Jones. Now, uh, and you wrote about it a little bit, but and it's it's kind of a theme or almost a meme in the verbal way. Are sacks a quarterback stat? I think. And this is something that was advanced initially by the minds over pro football focus. You know, we often think sacks are an offensive line stat. And I think the better way to look at it is they're not exclusively an offensive line stat. I've got a series over at Big Blue View um, breaking down all 38 of those Daniel Jones sacks. And I graded them as follows. Um, 100% on the quarterback, 100% on somebody else. And then 50-50 where the quarterback had some fault, but people around him also had some fault as well. And I've got six of them as completely on Daniel Jones, six of 38. Um, And then there are, I think, 18 where the fault is completely elsewhere, and then 14 where it's like Jones screwed up, but yeah, this guy screwed up too. Um, So sacks, I think, are in part a quarterback stat. They are not exclusively an offensive line and protection stat. You know, because you could have coverage sacks where it's like, Okay, the quarterback had time, but nobody's open. You could have, obviously, protection sacks where it's like, 
there's a complete bust or the left tackle just got beaten badly or somebody makes missed a blitz pickup. You could have 50-50 sacks where it's like, okay, quarterback had some options here. He could have gotten the ball out, but at the same time, he was under pressure pretty quickly. And yeah, maybe he could have thrown it away, uh, so I can't put it all on him um, because there was a protection breakdown, but he could have done something better. So we're going to split this one 50-50. So our sacks of quarterback stat, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to even in, in these, gosh, in the social media age, like you'll get something trending like that. And even right. if I love pro football focus, like, and so if they explained it, they would explain it very similar to you. But you get these things like no, this, and mean, running backs don't matter, and it's not literal. That's, that's what the slogan thing. is, like, right? I mean, everything gets distilled down into a tweet uh, or a bumper sticker slogan. I mean, and frankly, that's not a football thing. That's just a society thing. Yeah, the day we exactly. live in, Right. I mean, everything happens in 140 characters or everything has to fit on a bumper sticker. And if it doesn't, we don't pay attention. But I mean, it's like with the same, like running backs don't matter thing. Like that's the argument. That's the distillation of it to a, a slogan. And it sounds outlandish. Running backs don't matter. What do you mean? That's ridiculous. And there's pushback on that. But the deeper argument is, Running backs, you know, they matter, but you don't have to pay a premium either in the draft or in free agency or in a big contract because you can replicate what a running back might produce or at least get maybe 80% of that from somebody later in the draft. And, oh, by the way, the guys up front, they matter too because Todd Gurley, yes, he's very good and makes some great plays, but he also had some good blockers. I mean, that doesn't fit in a tweet, you know? (laughs) Exactly. And nobody reads articles anymore. And so, like, they just distill it down to running backs don't matter. And then people that don't read the articles then push back on that. I mean, it's it's a it's a more global problem than just football. But again, any question about that. And if he decides, look, you know what? I'm not playing in the spring. I'm entering the draft. I'm starting draft prep now. Is he getting drafted in, say, the top 10 of the draft? I think without a doubt. I mean, we know the importance of the quarterback position. Do I think that he his grade right now would be reflective of that draft spot? I don't think so. You know, because I think, you know, what you said about facing the types of pockets that he would face in the NFL, that's completely accurate. Like he did not face some some of the crowded pockets. There were times where he did, um, but not to the amount that you'd be comfortable saying this guy is, you know, a sure thing. Did he face some of the complex rotations that you see in the NFL at time, particularly in the, in the national semifinal against Clemson, and he didn't handle them well? You know, And what I focused on in the piece that I wrote, um, and Matt and I talked about this a bit in our film room as well, was he gets to the right answer a lot. But sometimes, even though he gets the right answer, it's still slow with the ball coming out of his hands. So he reads the rotation right but he's still late with the throw, and that either causes him to miss a big play or nearly throw an interception, um, two examples of which I highlighted in that game against Clemson. Um, so he's somebody that I think, look, if he had a chance to play again this fall, you'd see him work through more situations like that. You'd see defenses now say, oh, look, we saw what Clemson did to him. we got to show him some of these looks. So he'd face more of those rotations in the secondary and have a chance to get more reps on film and get more experience against them. If he had one more year, I think, yeah, he'd play himself into QB1 discussion. And I know some people have him there right now, and I understand it because then you see him, you know, 
create outside of structure. You see him make some reads and throws. You see him do the other things that he can do as a quarterback right now, and you say, yeah, this is legit. This guy can play. And I understand why people feel that way. But if we're talking about, you know, quarterback one of the draft, we're talking about a guy that could be one of just 32 people on the planet to have that kind of job, which is a starting quarterback in the NFL, we're going to be a bit nitpicky. We're going to be harsh with our criticism sometimes and highlight the areas he needs to develop. And if he can get faster, play a little faster, yeah, he's in the QB1 discussion. Will he get that chance now? That's up in the air. You know, I think if you're Justin Fields, you have a very difficult decision to make because I don't think, you know, I don't think these guys that play in the spring will be able to be drafted at the same time. It's just too hard to do it unless they push things back a bit. And the NFL can do it somewhat, but I don't know if they will. Um, so he faces a tough decision. Trey Lance from North Dakota State faces a tough decision. Um, I wish them all the best. I do think that Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, if they are all in the draft next spring, are all first-round picks, it's just a matter of winning the first round. And I think if he had another season at Ohio State, Justin Fields would make a much stronger case for QB1 than he does right now. How would you rank those three guys uh, as of right now? I mean, sitting here right now, I would have them Lawrence 1, Lance 2, Fields 3. Um, I think with what we've seen from Lance, I think he's closer to being ready um, than Fields. You know, and I, I think, you know, potential-wise, ceiling-wise, Fields might have the best ceiling of the three. You know, if he, if he speeds things up and combines that with the athleticism and the raw talent, he could be special. Um, but he, I, it's not a sure thing. You know, he might have a lower floor than the other two. I look at Lance and I see a guy that could walk into San Francisco right now look Jimmy Garoppolo in the eyes and say, I'm the captain now and run that <laughs> offense and run it better. Like I really do. Um, and, and Lawrence, look, Lawrence has, it's, it, it's speaking to sort of football, Twitter and football media. Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence is a great example of the life cycle of a draft quarterback because this time a year ago, everybody was like, look, Trevor Lawrence is the next Andrew Luck. Like this guy is ridiculously special. This guy is going to be a 10 year you know, all pro in the NFL. And now he's almost like an afterthought because everybody's so entranced by what Justin Fields and Trey Lance did last year that he's become an afterthought. But let's not forget, Trevor Lawrence is damn good too. Yeah. Um, short you know, attention spans. I, I think he could fit. Yeah, exactly. We have such short attention spans. We're like, we're like goldfish swimming around in a little pond. Um, but I think Trevor Lawrence could walk into almost any, any NFL locker room and run their offense, like period. I mean, when Matt and I did a film room on him, I was talking about how he could run, you know, a downfield vertical passing offense and run it extremely well, or he could run New England's. And Matt was like, he could run Baltimore's. You know, he's that athletic. Yeah. You know, he's not obviously the athlete Lamar Jackson is, but he can do some of that stuff. I mean, that's how schematically diverse Trevor Lawrence is. And so, you know, I have Lawrence one, Lance two, because I think Lance is a bit closer, Fields three. But Fields still might have the best ceiling of all of them. And in a mock that I did recently over at Touchdown Wire, all three of them came off the board in the top ten. Like, I, I think that's where they end up going no matter what. Um, it's just, I, I just still think that, you know, with Fields, if he had one more year at Ohio State, he'd be knocking on that top QB1 door. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Mark. This has been great. A wide-ranging podcast. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug? Any articles, podcasts, or anything else you want to plug? 
No, man, just thanks so much for having me on. It's a blast. It's been too long since we had a chance to catch up, so this was fun. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Schofield. And, you know, on the app, we just spent, you know, a good portion of 45 minutes kind of uh, dunking on a little bit. But it's where we spend all our time. So if you want to follow him on, you can follow me there at Mark Schofield or, you know, the work over at USA Today, Touchdown Wire. Um, but Twitter's the best at Mark Schofield. All right. Thank you, Mark. Be safe. Be good. You too, man. Take care.